Well, a bit of a confession to begin with. My dad is a train spotter. Very sadly, he's a good man, my dad. I really like my dad. Uh, he's a faithful minister of the gospel, has been for many, many years. But, and it's a big but, isn't it? He is a train spotter. Uh, his obsession with trains has scarred my life pretty much the whole way through. It may even scar future generations of our family. If you don't know what a train spotter is and you come from a normal kind of culture in the world, in our country we have people that stand at the end of platforms in train stations and note down the numbers of the trains. And my dad has done that for, for many, many years. There is one redeeming factor, though, a feature of my dad's uh, obsession with trains. He's always had a model train set. Uh, and each of our houses as children, uh, my dad had meticulously set out in the attic uh, a whole train, uh, model trainway, and it was absolutely fantastic. The, the trainway would include uh, much of what a real-life train network would include. There was always a shed with lots of little sidings and lots of trains sort of all very kind of carefully uh, lined up. You, you would then go to kind of go around, there was a main line station with lots of platforms and then you go around a corner and you get a little branch line station, probably, you know, with a mountain vista behind it and a little stream running around, you know. It was absolutely wonderful to play with. There were hills and there were bridges and there were viaducts and, and little people on each of the platforms and, and cars waiting at level crossings and all of those important things. And, and there were trains. There were trains everywhere. Steam trains and electric trains. And it was all meticulously timed. My dad's a mathematician, so everything was timetabled to an absolute T. And, and what it was really, if you think about it, it was a condensed taste of the real thing. It was a condensed taste of... The real thing, the real railway network. And when you delve into the book of Philemon, you may at first think you've been slightly sold short due to its size. But what we have, many would consider, is a condensed taste of the whole of the New Testament. Now, you're catching a glimpse, if you like, of the whole picture through the lens of this letter. Philemon has been described by many kind of scholars as the New Testament in miniature. It's a captured real-life moment. Some, some describe it as a verbal freeze frame, if you like. And what we see in this beautiful little letter is loving words from the Apostle Paul to a friend. And the friend is called Philemon. And we, say, we see that Philemon is the recipient of letter. Look down at you, you'll see verses 1 to 3. You'll see that the recipient is named there in verses 1 to 3 in the, greet, in the greeting. And look at that greeting. Paul describes himself there as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not an unusual way that Paul introduces himself. He's done that in Ephesians, in Colossians 4, um, verse 18, and Philippians as well, in chapter 1 there. But notice the double meaning of that phrase. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And firstly, that is a recognition of uh, the fact he's, of his state in prison because of his gospel ministry. But it also shows us that he's not a prisoner of Caesar, the ruling governor at the time. He is, of course, you know, he's there because Caesar said, put him in jail. Uh, but he is more a Christ prisoner because the love of Christ constrains him far more than the manacles around his wrists and his ankles. 
Now, Timothy is the, uh, the co-sender of the letter we see, but this wealthy man Philemon and his family, they are, the ones, they are the ones that Paul is sending both love to and this letter to. But notice, um, if you have a look down, now you'll see verse 2 there. Paul's greeting to Philemon's wife and son, so you get Aphia and Achippus there. Uh, the, the letter is also to the church, in verse 2, that meets in your home. You see, the envelope of the letter, uh, if they had envelopes, they didn't have seals and so on, but if you imagine the envelope, it would never have read personal or private on the front of this letter. The letter, you see, was for the whole church to listen into. Uh, the language is a giveaway to that kind of inclusion as well. You'll notice the word use come up in, uh, in, in, the, in the language the whole time. And in verse 4 and 21, in the original language, they're, they're singular in the sense that they would be addressing Philemon alone. All the others are written in the plural. It's to be understood that this letter is for everyone to hear. And therefore, the responsibility that Paul requests Philemon to engage with is the same responsibility that the church is to engage with as well, and us also as we listen to this letter. Now Philemon was, if you like, a note attached to a more lengthy letter of Paul to the group of churches in the town of Colossae. So the Colossians that we have, if you flip your page back, you'll see you can go back to Colossians there, the letter that many of you will know. And if you like, what we have in Philemon here is a bit like a post-it note that's stuck onto that letter that's sent to the churches in Colossae. It's to Philemon, but also the church that met in his house. Now, in the, if you know Colossians, you'll know that the, the major theme there is of, of kind of reconciliation through the power of Christ. And that is the kind of dominant theme. In Philemon, that reconciliation is now called to be put into practice. And we see the foundation work of this appeal in the thanksgiving and the prayer that begins this letter of Paul. So cast your eyes down to verse 4 and 7, you'll see thanks and prayer. It's a very normal way that Paul kind of constructs his letters. Let's have a look at that if we can. Verse 4 to 7. Now I'm not suggesting in this section that Paul is kind of using kind of manipulative, kind of softening, buttering up tactics here. Look what he's doing though. Now, what he's actually doing is, he does it in other letters, it, it, that he, he opens with just a joyful and a, a very unloaded thanks. These verses are a real, natural expression of his brotherly love to Philemon. Look at the example of verse 4. We see the persistent and joyful person of prayer in Paul, don't we? Verse 5, we see the unselfish content of Paul's prayers. It's it is faith and love that keep him going in prayer. Not, not anything else. He's not looking for anything back. He's not saying, oh, if I pray for you lots, you know, I'll give, you a, give me a lot of cash and so on. It's, just, it's faith and love which keep him going. Note also in verse 6 that Paul prays not for comfort for Philemon, but activity with the emphasis for Christian mutual love. Paul prays that Philemon will be active in the sharing of his faith. That he will not discriminate uh, kind of who he shares his love for, uh, uh, love of Christ for, with. And in so doing, Philemon will gain full understanding, that phrase is used there, full understanding of every good thing that he can do for Christ. See, the emphasis of this whole letter, as Paul writes to Philemon, is, is that he, it's about Philemon's service of the church. His service of Christ in the church. 
And so Paul recognises faith and love in this man, Philemon. Now these are directed both towards Christ, but also outwardly to the church as well. Such has been Philemon's faith and love so far. That's his reputation, if you like. That he has to refresh the hearts of the Lord's people, his fellow Christians, as we see in verse 7. That's the precedent, if you like, that Philemon has set. And the basis, it will become the basis of Paul's argument later in the letter. See, Philemon is the one who has been working out his faith and love, and he's offered refreshment again and again and again to the people in his church. I wonder if you can think of people like that around it, you know, who you you know, who just continue to refresh you in your faith and in Christ, and they love you continually. They're wonderful, aren't they, to have people like that around. They exude love and care and support. And these people rightly understand all that they have in Christ, and they are putting it very much into use, encouraging others in faith and love. Well, Philemon is one of these people. Such was his refreshing nature that actually in verse 7, you see in verse 7 it says, refresh the hearts of the people. That word isn't hearts actually in the original, it's actually bowels. But we don't translate it because I think all of us would have a problem with that. Um, We translate it as hearts there. It's literally, he's refreshing the core of everyone around him. He's refreshing the bowels, I don't know why, but you know, you get the idea. Philemon is a great example for all of us to aspire to. Now, I think our love as a, as a congregation uh, should many times be commended. I hear some really wonderful, loving, caring things that are done between us in the congregation. But I wonder whether we could take note of Philemon here, just for a moment. His ability to refresh. He shared his faith again and again and again with those around him, with his Christian brothers and sisters. I'm sure he shared it outside the church as well. I'm sure he made Christ known to his friends outside, to his neighbours, to his colleagues and so on. But that's not the point here. He shared his faith with those around him in church. He was an encouragement, a refreshment. Philemon was the type of person that would speak confidently of his love and his faith in Christ. He was, mentioned Christ in his conversations. It would refresh others. He he would just be bubbling up in his adoration of the Lord Jesus. Don't we need to be more like that? Unashamed, delighting in Christ with one another. Because we know, don't we, when we meet people like that, they are so refreshing to us and our own faith. They're a great gift to a church. I wonder whether we perhaps could all pray today that we might also be those who are known for our faith and our love. And it kind of oozes out of every pore of our being, refreshing, if you like, the bowels of everyone around us. Let's, let's not put it that way there. Let's put it out of the hearts of everyone around us. Paul's prayer of thanksgiving is followed by an appeal, the main sort of centre of this letter. Like many of his letters, you get an introduction. It provides the basis of what is to come. Lots of the words that he used in that introduction, verse 1 to 7, crop up again in the, in the following verses. And they provide a framework, if you like, for this post-it note of appeal to Philemon. And that appeal becomes very apparent in verses 8 to 11. Have a look at it down there, if you can. It's kind of the main body of this letter. Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis here of love, we see. 
And notice first that Paul's appeal replaces what you might assume might be an order. On first reading, it seems that it may seem to you that Paul is sort of saying something like, do what I'm about to tell you, Philemon, or else. There's a kind of tone that you might have read through it that way. But actually, the word bold, as you see in verse 8, is not suggesting that Paul is about to flex his kind of authoritarian apostolic muscles here. No, rather, boldness there refers to Paul's right to speak freely, to whom he considers an equal partner with him, those Philemon. You see, he's an equal partner in verse 17, if you look down there. See, Paul is not trying to place a kind of thin veil over a kind of an apostolic whap around the, around the chops or anything like that. No, he restrains from using any kind of force here to kind of manipulate the situation. Instead, he appeals to Philemon out of love. He wants Philemon to draw his own conclusions and make his own decision about what is fitting for him to do in his context as a Christian. And we know that situation, don't we, I guess? How many times have, have we tried to leave a friend to make their own mind up? We long for them, we pray for them that they would make the right decision, but we, we want them to make up their mind so that they don't resent us kind of cajoling them into doing it. It only breeds resentment if you go that way, I think. And Paul understands that interfering directly in a relationship between what we'll see in a moment is between a master and a slave relationship would be like me walking around, you know, the kind of local area, interfering in other people's relationships, you know, like telling parents, oh, you don't want to discipline your kids like that, you want to do it this way, or, you know, you don't want to speak to your wife like that, you want to do it that way, you know, it's just totally inappropriate to interfere when not wanted. And Paul, therefore, appeals out of love. He restrains from directing, forcing Philemon. And the subject of the appeal becomes apparent if you look down at verse 10. And we see here, we're introduced now to a character, Enesimus. Now he is a slave of Philemon. We'll come to the slave master thing in a moment, so just so we get the context right. But Enesimus is a slave of Philemon. And it seems that he's quite an unsatisfactory one. Uh, look down at verse 11, he's, he's described as useless. It doesn't get much worse than that, does it? He's a useless slave. He may have further annoyed his master, but the implication in verse 18 is that he owes his master some money. He probably might have robbed him, we assume, before escaping to freedom. That's the context. What you have here is you have Philemon, a wealthy master whose church meets in his house. We have Anesimus, who's a slave, who's now gone AWOL. He's absent without leave, and he's a useless slave uh, that has probably nicked something as well, but now he's gone. Anesimus had become, though, something else. Whilst absent on leave, something had completely transformed in his life. And Paul uses that kind of family imagery. Look down at verse 10. He's now become Paul's son. That is what he's saying is, Anesimus has bolted. He's got out of the house. He might have, might have nicked something. Formerly a, a slave, a robbing slave, a useless slave. But now with Paul has become a Christian. He's now a son in that way. And Paul therefore appeals to Philemon, showing that Anesimus is now really his brother in Christ. And he doesn't stop there though, does he? Look, look down at verse 11, where he says, 
Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become both, uh, he's become useful both to you and to me. Now, although it's difficult to spot in our language and what you see down here, Paul is, it's very clever here. Verse, he's using a kind of word play in order to emphasize that now Anisimus is a Christian. He's really become Anisimus. That's what the original says. He's becoming a Christian, now he's really become Anisimus. That is, he's become useful because the name Anisimus means useful. Paul is pointing out this change. Once useless, robber, slave, now useful brother in Christ. And his usefulness, as Paul says, could potentially be in the church family. Certainly Paul thinks that's possible because he wants to keep him, to help him with his ministry, as you see in verse 13. But his usefulness also could be to Philemon in his domestic circumstance as well. Because a slave who was honest was an incredibly precious commodity in that, in that culture. So the basis of the appeal is love. The subject of the appeal is Anisimus, and the benefit of the appeal is Philemon's either spiritual family or his domestic family. Now, let's think about the slave uh, um, issue here, if we can, for a moment. This, this book is not, this letter is not condoning slavery as we have known it in the last sort of 200 years in this country. Uh, about 80% of the population would have been slaves at this time. Uh, and it was a very, very different understanding of the term slave. If you want to talk about that with me later, you're more than welcome. Uh, but it's, a, it's very, very different to the forced slavery that we uh, knew of and thankfully abolished uh, about 200 years ago with Wilberforce. Come and talk to me afterwards if you'd like to know more about that. But this letter is not speaking and primarily, it's not condoning slavery, and nor does it anywhere in the New Testament in the ways that we've known it in our country in the last uh, 200 years or more ago. Paul is not appealing for that. Uh, rather, he's tackling the specific subject of reconciliation here and acceptance within the church. That's the main point of this letter. Now, Anisimus, if you just know, if he's a robbing slave, in the law, in Roman law, he would have deserved death and a pretty gruesome one at that. Philemon also added to this, so you think about the sort of situation in trying to reconcile them, um, also added to that, Philemon would have been conditioned by a culture and a society that would have wanted and expected revenge to have occurred for a robbing slave. You could bring him back, but some act of revenge would have taken place. And therefore, what Paul is having to do, he's having to appeal as a brother in Christ. He's saying, Anisimus now deserves, as a brother, to be treated in a different way. And so he says in verse 12, I'm sending him, look, who's my very heart. Back to you. Our second point, the second kind of section of this um, appeal really is um, from verse 12 to 16. As Paul sends back Anisimus, his now brother in the Lord. And Paul shows here that uh, though he only appeals to Philemon, he actually intends to send Philemon back. He doesn't check that Philemon won't kill Anisimus, as he legitimately could in the law. But he sends him back, describing his unity with, his trust in, and his longing for Anisimus. Verse 12. 
Look how Paul describes his unity with Anesis. He is, it's such an important phrase. It says, he is his very heart. Verse 12. And that phrase, his very heart, is it's critical to the whole book. It's that same word that I pointed be, to point you back in verse 7. Paul is saying, Enesimus is my very bowels. Sorry to bring that one up again. He's saying he's his very heart. He's just like me. Our core, our, our, everything is the same. It's a very strange word. It's the Greek word, splankna. Um, it, it's rare in most kind of ancient uh, literature. And Paul uses it very, very sparingly. It, it, it speaks again of a, of a purity of heart, but it, it works here as a very clever tool of appeal. And Paul knows that his friend Philemon would welcome him with open arms if he were released from jail. If Paul was the one to get out and be going back to the church, he'd be going, oh yeah, come back, we love you. Such was his confidence in their friendship, he even requests a guest room. You see that in verse 22? But you see then Paul to say, oh, this Anesimus chap, this robbing slave of yours, he's now my very heart, is to suggest to Philemon that any treatment that Anesimus receives should be the same as he should receive, or would receive. And what does that mean for Philemon? That means for Philemon, he's got to break down all in his mind, all those kind of cultural and social and financial barriers which should have been clouding him at the time. You know the kind of barriers that we erect ourselves between others and different circumstances, different levels of kind of affluence, different places in the area. We've seen a lot of those barriers and the pain that they cause, haven't we, recently, in the disaster up at Grenfell Towers. I'll give a more personal, a very more embarrassing illustration of this if I can. I remember going on a cricket tour. I took I used to work as that in. Uh, boarding school, I used to take our boys over uh, to all sorts of places. They went to Barbados once. Not rubbing that in. It was pretty amazing, but I did. Um, <clears throat> we went over and played lots of cricket for a couple of weeks. I remember going, uh, all our boys had the, every bit of equipment you can possibly imagine. And um, it was perfect. It was all pristine. And we went over uh, to Barbados and they had nothing. You know, they'd come out with one scraggy little pad on their front leg and with a bat that had probably been handed down from five generations. They had nothing, and they looked awful. They wouldn't be allowed to play at many clubs in this area. Our boys looked pristine, wonderful. And sadly in my mind there, for a moment, they forged a prejudice. I made a judgment. It's so easy to do, isn't it? For a moment I just thought, looked at my boys with a sort of smug pride and said, yeah, they're better, aren't they? And then they promptly got whopped by most teams in Barbados, which was wonderful. But how very sad of me to think that way. Paul is raising in the mind of Philemon his view of Anesimus, where once he was thinking, thieving slave. Now there was a brother in the very heart of Paul. He understood the same gospel, had the same faith in the, in the same saviour, Jesus Christ, was saved by the same sacrificial death as Jesus strung out his arms on a cross. Yet Paul recognises in Philemon, like all of us, that we have those sinful tendencies, don't we, to, to lead to such sinful prejudices. We need to remind ourselves that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost. 
wherever we're from, however big our bank balances or whatever car or we drive and however small or big our houses or flats, first and foremost, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are each other's very heart. I'm not going to use the word, but you know it. And so Paul has shown his unity in Anesimus, and now he demonstrates his trust. Have a look down at verse 13 and 14. Paul expresses his desire to keep Anesimus. He's showing his trust here of him. Look at verse 13. He shows his confidence in this new convert, Anesimus. And Paul is suggesting that he's got potential here to be a full-time gospel worker with me, Paul. And so Paul does the appropriate thing by recognising his, his need for consent in verse 14. There, there seems to be a sneaky kind of appeal from Paul here uh, for favour from Philemon regarding Onesimus. We do this, don't we? we? When we want something, we use all kinds of persuasive methods. And, and Paul is no different here. He shows Philemon that he's, he's done the right thing or will do the right thing. Uh, and by doing this, he looks for kind of... Oh, You've done it. Let's look a bit for a bit of favour here in that kind of spontaneous uh, favour kind of wishing there. Children like this when, they, when it comes to bedtime, aren't they? They stupidly think that if they eat all their vegetables at dinner and you know, tidy up their bedrooms, uh, that they can stay up a little bit later. You know, bedtime comes and they kind of look at you with this kind of, oh, come on, look what I've just done. I mean, of course you're going to let me stay up. No, don't be so stupid. Um, you know, it's not going to gain you favour. This is not a worthy thing in that way. But the favour that Paul appeals for is far more worthy. Paul does the appropriate thing and requests that Anesimus should be received back. In showing his enthusiasm for keeping Anesimus, Paul has shown his value. He's saying he is a brother in the Lord and therefore Paul requests, he said, come on, this is what you need to do. If this is, your, this is the way you think about me, this is your heart. Receive this man back. And this is the climax, verse 15 and 16 of the appeal. Paul once again reserved, uh, is reserved, as he exclaims, he was separated from you. See that in verse 15? That's a very reserved way of saying he nicked some stuff and ran off. He was separated from you. In reality, he's describing there, you see, Anesimus' illegal separation. And it's kind of euphemistic, isn't it? it the language also hints to the fact that, oh, well, yeah, God's, God's been in control here. This is all part of God's purposes. The reason for the separation is so that under God's sovereignty, Anesimus might return now, but as a brother. Look how God has used that situation. Paul appeals that he be received back. That is not to say that his status as slave will change, but rather now that he will be seen as equal. He will be seen as an equal in Christ. He's a brother. It's difficult to suggest parallels today. Perhaps in a way we may need to caution ourselves at times as we welcome people from other churches. You know how you do it? It doesn't matter where you're from or what kind of church. Sometimes you welcome people, you, you have a conversation, you say, oh, you go to that church. Really? As you look down your nose at them? You might have heard something about that church. So easy to do, isn't it? We have few challenges of accepting those outside our comfort areas, you know, in, in the kind of area we live. There are a few kind of racial, social, ethical, legal issues that enter this building, for example, in the lives of Christian brothers and sisters. But if there were, 
And there may be more in the future. We pray that that would be the case. I guess this is a preparation to say, are you ready? Are you ready to welcome them as brother and sister? Philemon clearly was going to find accepting his useless slave back as a brother in Christ very difficult. It would have been extraordinarily difficult. The scorn that he would receive if he was a wealthy man, you know, perhaps in business. You can imagine his business partners just looking down their noses and snarking at them the whole time. The ridicule. He didn't exact revenge on him. He didn't get him put to death. You're a weak man. I'm not doing business with a weak man like you. It would be very hard for Philemon. Paul's endorsements of Anesimus would help, but the pressure would be enormous. But is Philemon's ability to refresh hearts, their bowels, that, that Paul, that's what Paul is confident in, isn't he? Such that his wish in verse 20 is spoken with confidence that Philemon will be the reconciling, accepting master and brother now of Anesimus. Let's finish as we look at these last verses, verse 17 to the end. We see here that Paul wishes Philemon will refresh his heart in Christ. We've seen Paul's a very hard bargainer, isn't he? And Paul explains that welcoming Anesimus is like welcoming himself. The logic is ruthless, it's persuasive, and now he's saying, live it out. Do it. I want you to think about it for a moment. Would you really prepare the same welcome for the person that sat near you now? As you would, let's say, a Christian refugee came from Syria with their ten children. They walked in the, in the back here now and they sat down in the row in front of you. Would you give the person sat next to you right now the same welcome as you would that very large family with very great needs? Would you offer the same warmth of relationship? Because you know the cost. You're savvy enough. You know the cost of welcoming and loving and refreshing a family of that size. You know the cost. You know how sacrificial of your time and everything that would be. Well, such is Paul's commitment to seeing Anesimus accepted. He pledges to actually have any money owing to Philemon charged to him. He's willing to take the cost if you like. His words aren't empty. Rather, he matches them with a sacrificial love. Gives Anesimus exactly what he needs. And the reason for this is really humbling. He doesn't want credit or promotion himself. Rather, the longing for Paul, again, is just simply to be refreshed. He wants to be refreshed himself as he welcomes, as he, as he offers sacrificial love. He wants to be refreshed. And though Paul is owed himself, spiritually that is, not financially, his humility is such that he asks for nothing but refreshment of his own heart. His very bowels again. He wants that which he knows Philemon can give, in verse 7. He wants that which unites Eunesimus and himself, verse 12. And so he wants that which he knows Philemon would offer him. But now he wants it offered to Anesimus as well. Paul will be refreshed. He will be encouraged in faith and love if Philemon accepts and reconciles himself in Anesimus. It is wonderful, isn't it, when you can 
wholly trust someone with anything, whether it's information about your life or even your life itself. And Paul's confidence in Philemon is such that he knows Philemon will do more than he asks, as we see in verse 21. He will, he, he's so confident he can write saying, I know you're accepting. And in so doing, you will refresh my heart. These people are Christian people. Philemon has no example that is out of reach for you and for me. All of us should be those who aspire to be those who, in faith and love, refresh those around us. But how? How do we practically do this, just as we close? We're British, many of us are. We have a tendency to be critical of everything and anything that moves. We must restrain that criticism at times and seek to affirm one another. I guess we should speak more of Jesus than we do the weather. Again, a very British tendency. We should speak more of Jesus and our delight in him than we do our jobs, our possessions, our relationships. We should be reminding each other, I guess, more and more and more of how much we love God. As we've been hearing of him in his word each morning as we do our devotions. It's incredible, isn't it, what we talk about? Sometimes it's so empty. I know I should do it more and I think I'm not alone in this. I think Philemon is a letter that speaks to us all. We're all going to face these kind of difficult, moral, ethical decisions that Philemon was going to be facing. And how we accept those of different backgrounds will test us. I wonder, are we ready? The call and the example of Philemon is that we refresh the hearts of brothers and sisters. Our faith and our love should be given to all people without exception so that they might know the great joy and the refreshment that they can know in Christ. Let's pray as we close, using the words of verse 25. Let's pray. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Heavenly Father, may you be our guide by your spirit. May you, through your word, mould us to be people who, as we've seen here, ooze with faith and love for you and for your people and for those who are lost without you. And we ask this for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.